All right, let's begin then. We okay? All right. Welcome, everyone. This is week two of 1 Corinthians. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your grace to us this day and throughout this week. And we thank you for the fact that you have been grace, uh, gracious to us uh, throughout our lives to bring us to this point and to bring us to know your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can never be thankful enough for the great salvation that you have given to us and the great future, the wonderful future that we look forward to. Uh, we pray, Father, that uh, as we study your revelation to us, contained in, here in the Word of God and particularly this book of 1 Corinthians, we might learn what you would have us to learn and we might be able to apply this to our own individual experience and lives. This might produce the kind of growth, sanctification, uh, holiness in our own lives so that we might be the kind of people you would have us to be and be useful for your service, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're looking at week two. We're looking at an introduction to the epistle. And uh, this is uh, very similar in many ways to Paul's other epistles, his other 13. He generally has an introduction, <clears throat> and most of the introductions are very similar. Now, some are longer than others. This one, nine verses, is a little longer. Romans is long. Some of them are quite short. Um, and I'll talk more about why this is so long in just a moment. Uh, he has a greeting, and that's what we're looking at. We looked at all the background last time to Corinth and the city. We're looking at the uh, greeting here, and this we said is, you know, Paul writing to so-and-so greeting, and usually that's grace and peace in most of his epistles. So we're looking at that greeting. We looked at verse 1 where Paul said he was called to be an apostle by the will of God, and he also mentions Sosthenes, who is apparently a companion of the Apostle Paul who is there when he is writing this letter from Ephesus. Remember, he's writing from the city of Ephesus just across the Aegean from Corinth. So now we're looking at verse 2. Uh, we saw the writer. Verse 2, we see the readers. And the readers are, are who he's writing to, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So when Paul has these introductions, uh, there's usually a reason why he says some of the things he says in these opening verses. And probably there's a hint here by the way he uses language and, and how he addresses the church. And I say here, by his emphasis, Paul disallows at the outset one of the Corinthians' tendencies to think too highly of themselves. And I'll have to say that a thousand times when we go through this epistle. The Corinthians think very highly of themselves. Uh, in two of his earlier letters to the church at Thessalonica, remember I said that the letters in, in the New Testament are not in chronological order. So the first letter Paul wrote was Galatians. Then he wrote, you know, 1st and 2nd uh, Corinthians, I mean 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And then he writes, so he's already written 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and that's to those church, church in the north in Macedonia that he came through on his second missionary journey. He's written those. He wrote those probably from Corinth when he was there, but now he left Corinth, has gone to Ephesus. And uh, in those letters, it's interesting, he said he was writing to the church of the Thessalonians, church of the Thessalonians in God. And here he addresses the church of God in Corinth. Now, of course, you know, Christians down through the ages have uh, made big deals out of these kind of phrases, you know, because... They'll see, oh, the church of God. We're going to call our church the church of God, you know, so that's the correct name. Sometimes Paul talks about the church of Christ. So some people say, we're going to call our church the church of Christ, you know, as though, uh, uh, you know, that's the approved name. 
But there may be something to this difference here. In Thessalonica, he said, I'm writing to the church of the Thessalonians. That is, that's your church. We talk about my church. CBC is my church, our church. But we don't mean that we own the church. You know, we don't we say my church. Uh, you know, we don't mean we own it. We just mean it's mine in the sense that's the one I go to. That's the one I'm a member of. It's mine in that sense. Uh, and the church doesn't belong. CBC doesn't belong to us. I mean, ultimately, belongs to God and to Christ and so forth. And uh, that's true here, too. The church doesn't belong to... Um, the church doesn't belong to, uh, belongs to God. It doesn't belong to Paul. It doesn't belong to Apollos. He'll say later in, in chapter 3, he says, For we, that is Paul and Apollos, he's talking about there in chapter 3, we're co-workers in God's service. But you are like a field. You are God's field. You are God's building. And he's going to compare the church to like a farm. And he's going to compare it to like a building. He's going to use these illustrations. But the point is, it's God's. It's God's field. It's God's church. It's the church of God. And so he's doing that, I think, we, you know, many think that he wants to just emphasize to these Corinthians, you know, uh, you're so high on yourself. You think so high, but just remember the church is really God's church. He's in charge and so on. Um, I say here, the next phrase, that Corinthians are sanctified. Remember that word sanctify means to set apart. You've heard Pastor Ken mention that many times. And called to be God's holy people. Or, you know, the old translation says called to be saints. A saint is one who is set apart. And uh, the so Paul says in this verse, I'm, I'm talking about you in Corinth are those who are set apart and called to be holy people. And that's going to become very important too because there's a lot of unholiness in the church at Corinth. There's a lot of, there's a need for, a lot of need for sanctification. And so he's going to continually point these things out. I just wanted to mention, just to remind us, remember that there are three tenses of sanctification in the New Testament. So writers will talk about someone who has been sanctified, someone who is being sanctified, and someone who will be sanctified. So there's a sense in which all of us are sanctified, there's a sense in which we are being sanctified, and there's a sense in which we will be sanctified, a past, a present, and a future. I know you've heard this many times. Pastor Ken has referred to it uh, many times. And most of the time we're talking about be here. When we say, you know, Bill Combs could use some sanctification. Uh, when my wife says, Bill Combs could use some sanctification, uh, you know, she, she, she means that second part there. You know, you could, you could, you know, do a little better, you know, in your life, you know. But so there's that past. At the moment of being born again, regeneration, we are sanctified in the sense we're set apart from the dominion of sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. Now, I'm not going to go into all of Romans 6 and all this now, but Romans 6 is very clear that in our unsaved conditions, uh, sin had dominion over us. Uh, we, we were controlled by sin. We were, Paul says in Romans 6, slaves to sin. And you remember Pastor Ken has sometimes mentioned those uh, phrases that Augustine used quite a bit about, if you think about Adam in the garden, he was able to sin or able not to sin. He was able to sin, he, he could sin, but he, was, he could have not sinned. He could have chosen what he wanted to do. Unfortunately, he chose to sin. And that affected all of us so that now when people come into this world, they're no longer like Adam. They're only not able, they're... they're <laughs> They're not able not to sin. They're not able not to sin. That is, all they can do is sin. Uh, now you say, well, they can do some good things, relatively good things. But so they're not like Adam. They're not, they can't just choose good 
all of our righteousness is like filthy rags and so forth. And so ultimately in God's sight, when we're, as we're unsaved, we can't do things that are really pleasing to God. So we're not able to please God. But once we're saved, we're back like we were at Adam. We are able not to sin. And so we want to become more able not to sin. And that process of becoming more able not to sin is sanctification or the present tense. But So in the past, we were under the dominion of sin. And that is broken at regeneration, at being born again. I mean, the person who gets saved, they don't feel it. I mean, they may feel happy, they may feel glad, and they often do. But they don't really know that God has done something inside of them to break that dominion so that now they are able to obey God. They're able to say, yes, I want to please God. I don't want, I'm able to turn away from sin. Now, it's not saying it's easy. <laughs> I mean, if you're a drug addict, it's not automatically you, just, you don't just give up drugs. But you have the ability to say no to sin and what we need to do is make progress in that. We need to grow spiritually, become stronger. We do that by saying no to sin and saying yes to God. That's present. And then there's the future, which is we're glorified. When we get to heaven, we'll be set apart completely from sin. So Paul is saying at the verse 2, he wants to remind them, listen, uh, you know, holiness is important and you have been, the dominion of sin has been broken and you're God's holy people. You're looked upon as God's holy people. Uh, I'm, I'm saying here under the sea, Paul is obviously speaking of the Corinthians' past initial sanctification. They're being set apart to God in holiness. Because they are set apart for God, they must also bear the character of God who has set them apart. The power of sin has been broken in their lives. They're no longer slaves of sin. They must not let sin reign in their lives. So holiness is a part of God's intention for when He saves us. He wants us to become a holy, more like Christ. And so when He says, um, when He reminds them that, He's reminding them that there's some problems in Corinth. Um, I mean, Paul's concept of holiness, and ours should be, it, res it revolves around observable behavior. And something's missing in Corinth. Paul's got reports, as we talked about, Thing, something is troubling. Something is wrong. Now, when you see this kind of thing, when you see this kind of problem in a Christian's life and you see a lot of sin and disobedience, there's two possibilities. One is they've just kind of like backslid. They're not making progress. They're just being disobedient. You know, Christians do that. Uh, Many of us in our lives, maybe as Christians, we've had times where we were just away from the Lord we just, or what we should be. You know, there's times of uh, dark times sometimes for people. Um, but true believers will come back to the Lord. The other possibility is, you know, a person not saved at all. That's, that's all an unfortunate possibility. And Paul will get to that in 2 Corinthians. Things get so bad, he says, test yourself to see whether you're in the faith, you know, you, you know, there's just sometimes you get so much sin that, you know, it's a problem. And I've, I mean, I've, this is one thing, you know, I've talked about, pastors talk about and people talk about, it. teachers talk, seminary professors talk about, it. we talk about it a lot because, you know, we have people and we just don't know what to make of their situation. You know, we pray for them, but what is going on? Is it just disobedience? Or is it the fact they've never been regenerated? You know, that is a tough issue. And I'm sure many of you have maybe have people in your family, friends and so forth, that you've thought the same thing about. You know, is this person really saved or did, is it just a false profession? What's going on here? Um, the problem for Cor the Corinthians is that they look more like Corinth than God's holy people in Corinth. So obviously Christians should look different from their culture. Uh, I mean, I've lived long enough. My wife and I were just talking about this. You know, in the 1950s, my culture down south was sort of a Christian culture. You know, I've mentioned that. We, 
we we read the Bible and we had scripture in church. I mean, school and we prayed, and they talked about sin and things like that. You know, so it was it wasn't hard to be a Christian. That's even in a public school, but now it's going to become more difficult. You know, because the things we believe are just awful. You know, homosexuality is actually sin. Well, that's not. <laughs> That's not, that's, you, yeah, yeah, you're not going to win any political, you're not going to win any political elections by saying that this time. You know, you won't, you won't win the governor's race if you say that, you know, no matter how conservative you are. If you say homosexuality is sinful, you won't get, you know, you're going to be in big trouble, you know, that kind of thing. So it's harder. And it was hard in Corinth. See, they lived in a very pagan society, a society like we're becoming. And they lived in that pagan society where immorality was just accepted. And, and so it's going to be tough for them. And Paul says, you know, you, you've got to look like God's holy people in Corinth. I say here the last phrase in verse 2, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, is designed to remind the Corinthians that they are part of a larger body of Christ and thus cannot go off on a tangent and do their own thing. Holiness is expected of all Christians everywhere. So the, Christian, the Corinthians aren't in some special situation because they're in Corinth. All Christians have to have this kind of holiness in their lives. Then he concludes, you know, in verse 3, with this standard grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I say Paul greeting sums up his whole theological outlook. The total sum of all God's activity towards his human creatures is found in the word grace. I mean, when I prayed a while ago, that was the word I used most often, grace, because that's what we think of. What, when we think about how God has, what God has done for us, it's all grace. Nothing is deserved. And nothing can be achieved on our own. We can't, we can't really achieve salvation. It's grace. It's given to us. The sum of all those benefits as they're experienced by the recipients of God's grace is found in the word peace. So because we have been given God's grace, we have, you know, the Hebrews say shalom. This is the Greek equivalent. Well-being, wholeness. Peace flows out of grace. So now we come to this section four through nine, thanksgiving. And that's something that Paul, you know, commonly has in his epistles. We see it in the book to the Philippians. So that church, the North Philippi, you know, from what we know about the church of Philippi from the epistle, we can see where Paul is thankful for them. But you want, you might wonder here, how is Paul able, <laughs> you know, to give thanks for this church? When you read through this book and see all the difficulties and problems, how can he give thanks? Well, he can give thanks that they're Christians, that they're saved. We can always give thanks that even though, you know, Christians may be what they should be, the fact that God has shown his grace is a wonderful thing. And here I say God, he can be thankful for God's giftedness to them. They have these spiritual gifts that they're exercising, chapters 12, 13, and 14, that we'll get to. Uh, I mean, yeah, 12, 13, 14, and, and they have these genuine gifts, which is a sign of real spiritual salvation, of real regeneration. They have these spiritual gifts. Uh, their spiritual gifts come from God and thus can be and should be thanked for giving them. So the Corinthians are generally gifted, but as we'll see in the letter, they're sort of self-satisfied. They're creature-oriented. They're boasting a lot. As mere human beings, look at us. Look what we are. But Paul's thanksgiving, as we'll see here, is Christ-centered. Everything comes from God. It's given to us in Christ Jesus. He says, I always thank my God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus. So, as I say here, there is evidence. There's always some evidence of the grace of God in every saved person so Paul can genuinely... I thank God for you. I thank God because God has saved you. 
in a sense, is what he's saying. God's given you grace. Um, the Corinthians boasted in the fact that they had spiritual gifts. Uh, but Paul emphasizes grace here, that these are gifts. They're given to you. Paul stresses God's gracious activity in their lives, not what they possess. Um, so because this is all grace, there shouldn't be any boasting. And we're going to see that they are boasting. Boasting, what does that mean? They're being proud in themselves. They're being proud of who they are and what they are. We'll see how that works out as we go through the letter. Uh, verse 5, For in Him, in Christ, you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. Paul now lists the specific graces for which he's giving thanks. The Corinthians have been enriched, Paul says, in every way or in every respect. But Paul focuses on their speech and knowledge. Paul selects these two areas most, almost certainly because they were the noticeably evident and highly prized in the church, these, these areas. Um, so Paul, what seems to be doing, he's talking about their gifts, but he's redirecting their focus from their gifts to God. You have been enriched you know, with all these gifts. Christ made them available to you. Now I say the term speech, logos here, probably especially refers to the many gifts of utterance noted in chapters 12 through 14. Some of those are like knowledge, wisdom, tongues, prophecy. Knowledge in chapters 12 through 14 refers to this, the gift of special knowledge, probably related to prophetic revelation. So Paul mentions all kinds of speech and all kinds of knowledge. He's kind of summarizing those gifts that they highly prize in chapters 12 through 14 and just reminding them at the beginning, now he's going to go into a lot of detail about this, but right at the, right at the beginning and, and thanking in his prayer, thanking God, I'm thanking God, uh, that these things that you prize are come from God. Now, he probably picks up two terms that they emphasize quite a bit. They're speaking and knowing, knowledge. And we'll see that those are big things in the ancient world, speaking, rhetoric, and knowledge. Um, so um, they, they emphasize these things as something they can boast about, something that makes them mature, uh, but Paul sees the way that things are happening in Corinth, they're acting in a, what he calls a carnal way in chapter 3, as we'll see. Now, as I said, these are legitimate gifts of the Spirit, and when used properly, they edify the church, as we'll see in chapter 14. So because they are spiritual gifts given by God, and even though they're abused and not used properly, uh, Paul can still give thanks that God has given these gifts. And he says, these gifts, thus, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. So what do these gifts do? These gifts show that when I came and preached the gospel to you, you really did get saved. There's, there's really a, some saving going on at Corinth because God was confirming our testimony about Christ, the gospel, by the, what we see in the results. The fact that they're exercising genuine spiritual gifts means this is a real church. It's a problem church, but it's a real church. It's, there's real Christians there. I said there may be some who are not, you know, but that can be true in every church, every organized church here on earth. So I say the Corinthians becoming rich in spiritual gifts is the confirmation of the genuineness of Paul's testimony of Christ among them. So God confirmed Paul's preaching as genuine and true by these gifts that he gave them. Verse 7, Therefore, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Now that might think, that's a kind of a, what's, why does he mention at the end, you've got these gifts as you wait, what's the point of bringing up the future, the return of Christ? What's all that about? 
I say the Corinthians potentially have at their disposal all the gifts of God. Paul then adds that such gifts are to be used in the context of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I mean, Paul could have just added that because if we read, you know, Paul's epistles, Paul was always thinking about the coming of Christ. He mentions it often, the rapture. You know, he had a, he had a, a forward look that, you know, we, I think we kind of lose. <laughs> it's, it's hard to maintain, you know, you read, you read these stories in history, you read a lot of history and read about how people lived 100 years ago. 200, 300, 400. They had some very difficult lives, very miserable lives. I was noticing something. Uh, so I mentioned there's, there's some documents called the Slave Chronicles. I'd never heard of these before. But uh, I forgot the exact history, but I don't know if it was in Roosevelt's administration, but they, they went around and documented uh, former slaves, people who were still living who had been slaves, you know, back before the Civil War. And I was reading some of that last night, and boy, it's heartbreaking. You know, it's heartbreaking. But when you're, when you're living that kind of life, or you're just a poor person, uh, you know, just you, you're hardworking, you're very poor. I'm thinking about, you know, in, in ancient times. You know, it's not like you just say, oh, I love my life, I just want to live, I want to be here forever, you know. Sometimes people look forward more to heaven than we do now. You know, when we have, we, have, we have a lot to enjoy here, which is God's given us a lot, and that's wonderful. But it tends to dull our focus on eternity, I think. It does mine, you know, and so that's a problem. And uh, so it could be that Paul, that's, just, that's all that's going on here. But I think there's more going on here in that Paul wants them to think about these gifts in light of the coming of Christ and his assessment of our service. Uh, Paul's gratitude for these gifts says, we still wait for the final glory. Uh, They haven't, contrary to what they believe, arrived. Now, there's a phrase that's... We had a little hiccup there, so bear with us. I guess that's the advantage of not streaming. We can just stop and go on. But we just added 10 minutes to the class, so I'm sorry about that for you. <laughs> so what I was saying was, why does Paul emphasize, you know, to these Corinthians, just remember that you got these spiritual gifts, okay, but these are all to be used as we think about how they relate to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, what's often talked about here is that... Uh, there's a concept that uh, Bible scholars and others will use when they look at the New Testament. They'll talk about realized eschatology. So, what is eschatology? Uh, remember, uh, remember. But uh, so the Greek word eschatos, you know, it means last or end. So it's the eschatology is a study of the end, a study of the last thing. So we sometimes talk about studying prophecy or studying future things. But when we study the book of Revelation, we're studying eschatology. We're studying the future. So it's just one of the categories of theology is future things. What's the future like? And uh, sometimes it looks like that the New Testament promises the future right now. Like John 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they haven't believed. Well, there's truth in that. They haven't believed, so ultimately they're going to be condemned at the great white throne. But the great white throne, great white throne hasn't taken place yet. But it's just as certain, you know what I mean? If you don't believe in Jesus and you die, unfortunately, there's no hope, unfortunately. So this, you know, the judgment will be at the great white throne. But it's so certain that it's like it's it's like certain, right? It's like we know it's going to happen. It's almost like it's already realized. John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So think about the concept of eternal life. We say I'm born again. I'm regenerated. 
I've been sanctified, you know. But there's more to uh, more to come, you know. Uh, when we talk about eternal life, yes, I have eternal life, but not in its fullest sense. You know what I mean? I don't, <laughs> I don't have the glorified body and so forth. So I have eternal life in the sense I'm born again. I have, I know I'm going to heaven. I know I'm saved, but there's a lot more to come. You know, eternal uh, life. Um, Romans eight thirty, and those he predestined, he also called. Okay, we've been called. Those he called, he also justified. All right, we've all been justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> Ooh, my feet don't feel like I've been glorified tonight, you know. So, no, we haven't been. But it's certain. It's just certain. It's so certain that Paul can say, it's just like we've been glorified. It's certain we will. So, the, we're realizing right now what's going to happen in the future. It's just a fancy term to say, you know, realize eschatology. Many people, when they talk about the Corinthians, say they're suffering what's called over-realized eschatology. It's proper to talk about the sense in which there are some things in the future so certain we can say, I've got eternal life, I'm going to heaven, you know. I, you know. But Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 4.8, already you have all you want. Now Paul is using satire here. He's mocking them. He's rebuking them. Oh, you have all you want. You've become rich. You've begun to reign. Now, all that's nonsense. <laughs> that's all just, you know, Paul is just, just uh, using irony and satire there. You know, you think, you know, you are so self-satisfied. You've got everything you want. You're like you're rich spiritually. You know, you, you're just, you just, you've got all the gifts. You're, you know, you've made it. You're there. You've arrived. And that without us. See, Paul says, hey, I'm not there. Brothers and sisters, I'm not there. So the point is, they have kind of an over-realized. They're claiming to have benefits that they don't really have. Now, unfortunately, in our Pentecostal and charismatic surface, uh, circles, we have a lot of over-realized eschatology. I mean, like, you know, if you just have faith, you can be healed of this. You know, the blood of Christ will heal you. I mean, there's healing in, in the atonement. You hear that constant thing, statement. There's healing in the atonement. You'll hear the preachers on TV. There's healing in the atonement, and all you got to do is just grab it by faith, and you'll be cured of your cancer or whatever it is. You know, there's healing in the atonement. Well, the truth is there is healing in the atonement because every healing that we receive is because of the benefits of Christ. But it's not all promised right now. <laughs> yeah, there's ultimately healing because we'll have glorified bodies. Yeah, we, there is healing in the atonement. That is, we'll all have glorified bodies. You know, we won't be sinners anymore. Yeah, it's all because of the atonement, but it's just not right now. It's not being realized. So there's this thing of promising the future now. You know, you can be wealthy. God wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be healthy, you know, and so forth. You just have to name it and claim it and so forth. That's sort of an over-realized eschatology, you know. Yes? The part says realized eschatology, claim your, um, your assurance to be saved at all, as opposed to saved, or in addition to how he would put it, advance his own will. Your, how does your how does overrealized play in your insurance? Well, certainly it plays a big part in the sense that, you know, you have eternal life. The fact that we're told, you know, we, we, we don't think about that much. You know, we read that verse and says we have eternal life. Yes, we do, but we don't have all of it. There's a lot more to come. But because God has promised that, that gives us great assurance about what is to come. I mean, he can promise that to us. He can say, because you're called, you're justified, and because you're justified, you're glorified. So assurance doesn't rest completely in advancing holiness. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. 
It, assurance primarily advances on what God promises in Scripture. Yeah, the primary thing is what God advances in Scripture. So that's primary. But there are these secondary things, and that is, you know, my own spiritual life. Now, that's very tricky because... Yeah, test of first John, yeah, yeah. But I'm just saying it's not always easy to evaluate that, you know, kind of thing. Uh, even in your own life, it's not, it's not easy. But the primary thing are those promises, you know. Do we believe what God has promised? Have I trusted Christ? Because that's, that's settled, like glorified is past tense. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Then test of assurance are still subjective. They are. They are, they are subjective. They are subjective. Yep, they are. Excuse me. So, um, verse 8. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We may be surprised, I say, that Paul should express such confidence in the Corinthian church since their current behavior leaves much to be desired. And as we will see, on numerous occasions, Paul will exhort them with the strongest kinds of warnings. So even though Paul is concerned enough to remind these Corinthians that they haven't yet arrived, he does hold out great confidence uh, that by God's actions, they will indeed make it to the end. He will keep you firm to the end. So, you know, we don't, we don't uh, as, you, as you just said about, you know, our sanctification, we don't... Uh, we're not basing our hope of eternal life on our own abilities and experience and, and that kind of thing. Uh, we're basing on the fact that he's going to keep us firm to the end. Yeah, and so Paul is, you know, Paul has that confidence, you know. He knows he came there. He knows he preached the gospel. He knows people have been saved. He sees gifts. He sees evidence of that. And so he's saying, you know, I know God will keep you firm and you'll be blameless on that day. So that's my confidence uh, generally in the church. Um, genuine Christians will therefore persevere to the end. They will continue in their faith. They may fall away for a time, as I said. They may blackslide. But genuine Christians will ultimately persevere you know, at, in the end. Verse 9, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So all that Paul has said in the thanksgiving about God's grace toward the Corinthians, both in the past and in the future, is now summed up in his glorious exclamation in which Paul connects the truth of God's faithfulness to his calling of believers. So how can Paul, you know, be sure the Corinthians of all people will be found guiltless on the day because God is faithful. You'll be found blameless. So it's God's faithfulness, as we said, that has called them, redeemed them, and serves the basis of Paul's hope for their final salvation. You know, this is, comp this is com uh, comparable to Philippians 1.6 when he tells the, the Philippians that he's confident that he, that he who began a good work in you, remember that verse, will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus, Christ Jesus. So, you know, that's why we, uh, we do look at when, you, when I said the, the, the promises of God are primary, but because the Bible says that God will carry it to completion, then it is a concern when a Christian falls away or moves away or denies the faith. That kind of thing. You know, is God really at work? Sometimes you don't know. I mean, it's funny. I mean, I remember a, a man at Intercity Baptist Church. And uh, he was a very faithful man in the church. And he fell away. And I would have said, yeah, he probably wasn't really saved. He, and it was... A lot of years. It was a lot of years before he came back. But as far as I know, he he's been very faithful in his Christian, you know, in his Christian experience. But it was a long time. He went through 
a couple of marriages and things that really make you wonder, but he's got a very strong testimony the last time I, uh, I known about it. So, yeah, sometimes it's, it's difficult to say, you know, about people. Yeah, that's the thing that preachers worry about when they talk about First John and they talk about the need to persevere and good works in the Christian life is they'd like to jar the complacent person because there's people who... <laughs> yeah. It's my next door neighbor there. <laughs> but... Uh, there's people who are so complacent, you can't jar them out of their profession, you know. They can be watching pornography and just say, well, I know I'm, I'm going to heaven. I don't, you know, I got the ticket to heaven, yeah. So when you're preaching on those things, you want to jar those kind of people. But the problem is there's always those people with a real sensitive conscience, you know. You know, I, you know, I accidentally saw something I shouldn't have seen on the Internet. Man, I, I've lost myself, you know. So... There's just people who are very sensitive, so that's the hard part about this thing is we want to have the right perspective, and that depends on our personality and all that kind of thing. So some people are very sensitive, and they seem to have a lot of trouble with assurance. They just have a hard time because they think that any sinful activity disqualifies them. You know, you know what we're talking about. Well, we're talking now about the first major section, chapters 1 through 4, of this book. This is almost like, you know, different epistles. <laughs> um, you know, you, you come in, you, you come into some stories, you know, if you're watching something on TV and, or you, you know, when I was, well, if, if you're going to see, if you're going to watch a story or see a drama, you don't really want to come in on the middle of it, you know, hardly because you don't know what's happened at the beginning. But in 1 Corinthians, you can kind of pop in <laughs> at a lot of places here because it's almost, I mean, they're related, but 1 through 4 is about one thing. Chapter 5 is about another thing. Chapter 6 is about another thing. Chapter 7 is about another thing. Chapter 8, 9, and 10 is about another thing. <laughs> Chapter 11 is about another couple of things. Then, so you've got these different issues, you know, that that you don't have the the continuous uh, theme that you have running through some epistles, uh, that through a lot of Paul's epistles, you have a lot more choppiness in a sense here. So we'll deal with each one of these. And the first one is this problem of divisions. And I say internally and against Paul. Some question about the against Paul, but there's some evidence of that. I say the problem that Paul addresses at the beginning of this letter is one that many of us can easily identify with. Divisions in the church. Quarrels within a church are unfortunately not an uncommon phenomenon. Although the Corinthians were quarreling with one another over their ministers, nothing in chapters 1 through 4 indicates they were deeply divided on issues so they were actually breaking up into separate groups. So just remember that. We're talking about divisions we're not talking about that they broke up into separate groups and somebody went out and started another church or something like that. It's not that. They were just differences of opinion within the church about different things, you know. Uh, so, and we'll see how that works out here. So I say the problem in 110 through 421 seems to be centered around four main issues. That is the problem of divided opinions. What are they, what are they divided about? First, there is quarreling and divisiveness among them that center around loyalty to their various teachers. Remember, I am a Paul, I am a Paulus, I'm Cephas, I'm a, that kind of thing. So they've got these teachers that they're expressing loyalty to. Now, as I told you before last time, there's no evidence, and, and Paul picks just one person to talk about, and that's Apollos in chapter 3. Paul and Apollos, primarily. But there's no evidence that these leaders were at odds with each other, you know. Uh, I mean, you can have that in a church where 
you know, one leader says this, another leader is over here, and the leaders are quarreling, and people are fighting. You know, that can happen in churches. But there's no evidence of that here. Remember, I talked about this verse last time. But remember, 3, 5 will say, What after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants. But remember, I said this 1 Corinthians six twelve about Apollos. He'll say later, I urged him to go with go him to go to you with the brothers. He was unwilling to go now, but he'll go. So remember that point I made. If Apollos was a problem, you know, if if Apollos was creating divisions, there's there are certainly divisions. But if Apollos was Apollos was creating those, if he's responsible, Paul wouldn't say, "Yeah, Apollos, go on back there." <laughs> That's just what we need, you know. So just remember. The party, the, the leaders themselves are not part of this. This is just people picking out individuals and uh, expressing loyalty to them. So that's the first thing. It's around different teachers. Second, this quarreling, quarreling is in some way related to the ideas of wisdom. Wisdom in the Greek philosophical tradition. The Greek words wisdom, the Greek words sophia, and Sophos are prominent in the discussion of chapters 1 through 3. Now these words, these words wisdom, wise, wisdom, are rarely used outside of chapters 1 through 3. They're rarely used in the, in the New Testament, except by Paul, Colossians, you know, some, and uh, 1 Corinthians. There's a chart of Paul's epistles. Uh, you see that big peak right there where these words like wisdom are used, that's 1 Corinthians right there. See? So this is really a subject that you know, Paul has mentioned. It's not, like, it's not like something Paul mentions in all his epistles. You know? He mentions it here because it's a problem in Corinth. It's something they're fascinated with. It's something that they're involved with. Um, it's used 16 times in chapters 1 through 3. Otherwise, three times in all of Paul's writing. So, um, so they're thinking of the gospel in terms of wisdom. So in the Greek tradition, you know, Greek is known for its philosophers. We think of Plato, we think of Socrates, Plato is people. Aristotle is also a people of Plato, but disagreed about everything. And uh, these schools of philosophy in Greek and so forth in Greece. So there was this uh, philosophical tradition. Um, in this philosophical tradition, people uh, would adopt a certain philosophy or a philosophy of life. And there were a number of these different ones. Uh, there were also people who just called sophists people who just uh, prized wisdom. And they liked to uh, attack through traditional, traditional culture, the traditional ideas. Uh, so Paul comes into a culture where it's hard for us to imagine because we don't have anything, anything quite like this at all. Uh, I mean, you, you, you came to America, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, very more religious and you had different religions, of course, you know, different denominations, but they're all Christian, you know, mostly, Judaism, but uh, nothing like this, not, not, nothing like these differences, and nothing where they rallied around uh, these philosophers and, and their teachings. So, uh, you know, I suppose there are people like that in our day who... Um, people uh, rally around and uh, uh, look to uh, uh, secular people who, you know, not, but not a lot of that. You know, we're not, we're not big on that kind of thing. I mean, you can be in politics today and you might not be able to speak two words, two sentences together, you know. Speaking is not a big necessary thing in to win a political election day. But to prosper in the ancient world, speaking was a big thing what they call rhetoric, being able to make arguments and talk and, and convince people. That's a huge thing. And people loved that. They rallied around that. 
I mean, you might have some of that with cult leaders, you know, people who are really to rally people around them. Uh, so sometimes people are just attracted to certain leaders and so forth, even, in, you know, we still have that in our country. But it was really big in that day. And the tri- trouble is the Corinthians are thinking about the gospel as a form of philosophy, a form of wisdom. And it's not that. It's not like, <laughs> it's, it's not like <clears throat> Platonism or Aristotelianism. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not like any of those kinds of philosophies or anything. So that's going to be something Paul talk more about that. Ten, uh, number third, uh, Paul also, um, Paul uh, also associated with these first two items are the repeated references to the Corinthians boasting, being puffed up. So the quarrels took the form <clears throat> of boasting in mere men. That's the name of it. Paul says, so you're boasting about human leaders. No more boasting about human leaders. Uh, those who make you, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? There's this constant reference about boasting, taking pride in oneself and one's leaders, one's philosopher person. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied, 1 Corinthians 4, these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. So you may learn from the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what's written. Then you will not be puffed up and being a follower of one of us over against the other. I mean, the closest thing we're, I hate, you know, get into this, but the closest thing we have in our country today is, you know, political stuff where people are really dogmatic about their political leaders, you know, who they're following and so forth like that. We have a lot of that, that's very, very strong. Um, I mean, I don't, you know, we've had, we've had some of that in our country over the years where certain people would capture, you know, the thinking of people, but not, not quite like this kind of thing in Corinth. So it's hard for us to get our heads around this kind of thing. So I'll try to give more examples as we go along. Fourth, it seems altogether likely that the quarreling over their ministers is not just for Apollos or Cephas, but also to some degree against Paul. Paul seems to be always defending his past ministry, present relationship to them. In 4.18, he says that some of the Corinthians have become puffed up toward him. Some of you have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. So there's a little, I don't want to overplay that, there's a little bit of uh, arrogance and 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 questioning of Paul, maybe his authority. Uh, you know, the point is, uh, Paul hasn't been there. He hasn't, he's as though I'm not coming to you. Paul's come into town. He was there for 18 months. He's gone. Where is he? Why hasn't he come? Uh, and there tend to be, you know, forming these kind of cliques, these kinds of uh, parties, divisions. How these four fit together, I say, is not altogether clear. The problem most probably stem from certain Hellenistic, Hellenistic means Greek, Greek influences in the background of the Corinthians, especially the emphasis on rhetoric, oratory, the ability to speak in the Greco-Roman world. This emphasis was especially prevalent among certain itinerant teacher philosophers called sophists who were more concerned with polished oration than with significant content. These philosopher orators were drawn from the ranks of the educated elite. They secured a large public following who paid to hear their lectures on various subjects. Oratory was much admired in the Greco-Roman world since it was a requirement in order to participate in public life. It was expected that these sophist orators would have a charismatic presence, including a striking physique, a well-resonated voice, an impressive wardrobe, uh, and a commanding presence. So these were the kind of things that they admired. They admired this kind of person who could speak well, who, you know, had a certain physique, a good voice, an impressive wardrobe. Now you think about Apollos. Remember how Apollos is described in Acts, uh, we're, not, we're, not, we're not to Acts 18 yet, are we, <laughs> on Sunday, but when we get there, you remember he's described as something who's a very polished speaker, who's a very eloquent speaker. You know, 
So he's been schooled in this school of oratory and tradition. That's a little bit of a contrast to the Apostle Paul, and, and Paul will mention that, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so there's a comparison there, you know, that, that Apollos and Paul are not part of, but they're making a big deal of it. Uh, so the fact that these people have come and gone from Corinth, Paul, Apollos, maybe Peter, it's hard to know. They say, you know, some of us are of Paul, we follow Paul, or some of us are of, are of Apollos, some of us of our Cephas, you remember that? Which is the name, the Aramaic name for Peter. And that's hard to figure out why he's saying that. Uh, there's no record in the New Testament of, of Peter ever going to Corinth. And there was no internet, <laughs> there was no TV. <laughs> so how would they know about Cephas to be a follower of him? Now he's, he was certainly a, an important apostle and maybe word got around, you know. Uh, you know so I don't, I don't know. Uh, so we, we just don't know whether he ever visited there or not, but there was certainly a follow, somebody, some people who were promoting him. Um, so the fact that these people came, Apollos came, Paul came, Paul came first, then Apollos comes, then Paul will come, maybe others come, and they're sort of ranking these people, you know? Uh, you know, who's better speaker, you know, who's more impressive? Uh, so they're quarreling about these teachers, their divisions, they're boasting about some of them, they're judging from a human perspective. And from this perspective, apparently Paul and his gospel doesn't come off that well. Remember, Paul preaches a crucified Messiah. A crucified Messiah. Now, that's not something in the ancient world that people are just going to wonderful say. <laughs> you know, you can talk about Christ was crucified on the cross. And, and people don't think that much about it. They know enough about Christianity. They accept that. But just think about that in the ancient world. Your message is about some guy that the Romans gave the death penalty to. Cruci Only the worst people in the world are crucified. You know, It'd be like saying, listen, I got a message about this guy who was, elect who was electrocuted you know, down in Detroit. We don't electrocute here, but he was electrocuted somewhere down in Alabama, somewhere. And if you follow him, you know, if you believe in him, you know, this crucified Messiah stuff is, is, can be hard to take if you're used to this philosophical tradition of great speakers, great leaders, great accomplishments. And here's Paul comes across. He doesn't have those qualities. He's talking about a, cruci a crucified Messiah. Paul lived in weakness. Uh, he, he didn't try to impress the wise as the Corinthians uh, thought of themselves. Um, so Paul sees all this, he sees the divisions not as, not as the major problem, but as a symptom. The greater problem is the threat to the gospel and to the nature of the church and the ministry and so forth. Because if you follow this kind of tradition, if you put the gospel there with, you know, that's, we kind of have that in some portions of Christianity, the health and wealth gospel. It's, it's really sort of right there in that tradition, the, the same thing we're talking about here. Come to Christ and you'll be healthy and you can be wealthy and you'll have a great life now. You don't have to wait for heaven. You can have it realized all right now. You can drive nice cars, live in a nice house. You know, you can have everything right now. Uh, that's, a, that's a more appealing message than trust Christ and you're probably gonna, you might have some, a lot of difficulty. People might not like you. Your family might not like you. Your husband or wife, they may divorce you. You know, here's the message of the gospel. Uh, so Paul sees the problem here. If you, if you, you could, trans, you could uh, damage the message of the gospel uh, you could lose the central uh, place of the cross in Christianity. Let me say this one last thing. In dealing with this first problem, three issues need to be set straight. The Corinthians' misunderstanding of the gospel, uh, 
So they're misunderstanding the nature of the gospel, as we'll see. It's about a crucified Messiah. And he says, the Greeks seek after wisdom. So that's, it's not a message that they're readily going to accept. Two, their erroneous perception as to the nature of the church and the leaders. So we've talked about that. They have this wrong view about what are, what, what's the purpose of leaders in the church? Three, Paul must correct both of these errors while at the same time reasserting his own authority over them. On the one hand, Paul says, you're putting too much emphasis on these leaders and missing the gospel. But on the other hand, there are genuine leaders and there is authority in churches, and I'm one of them, <laughs> and you've got to listen to me. I'm an apostle, and you've got to... So he's got to reassert his authority at the same time uh, you know, saying what you're doing and the way you're following these leaders, the way you're exalting them, promoting them, boasting, that's wrong. All right, let's stop here. I've gone over a little bit and we'll pick this up next week. Thank you so much.